The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Tuesday, PFTPM. Wasn't sure I was going to do one today, but there's enough going on that I can knock out four topics, answer your questions, call them today, and then we'll see about doing one on Wednesday. As needed right now, based upon developments, based upon news cycle, based upon whether or not there's enough stuff out there that gets me going, that gets me interested in spending some time babbling about things happening in the NFL. One thing that I like to talk about, I like to talk about stories that are developing in a way that mesh with the way that I believe they are likely to develop. And I'm talking about the Eli Manning, Daniel Jones, non-quarterback controversy that sure sounds like it is potentially going to be a quarterback Controversy, And this is not a difficult one for me. This is as commonsensical as it can be. Eli Manning is fading. The Giants believe in Daniel Jones strongly enough to make him the sixth overall pick in the draft. If the Giants are right about Daniel Jones, if the Giants are willing to let the two men compete and let the best man play... Common sense tells us that Daniel Jones should have a chance to start if the Giants are right about him. If they're wrong about him, then Eli Manning is still the better option. If they're right about him, Daniel Jones, in theory, will be the better option sooner rather than later. See, when Eli Manning was the rookie and Kurt Warner was the starter, Kurt Warner still had gas in the tank. That was 2004. Kurt Warner was... What? Early 30s? Not late 30s. Kurt Warner played through 2009. I remember when the word came out that he was retiring. I was on my way to Miami for Super Bowl 44. Colt Saints. Remember stopping at a Chili's or an Applebee's? One of the two, somewhere in South Carolina, maybe Rock Hill, just on the other side of the border. My wife and I, because that was back before I would fly. Stopped for lunch slash dinner. I think it was Chili's because we have an Applebee's here. So when I was on the road, I would always look for a Chili's because when you're on the road, you try to find a restaurant different than the one that is where you are. And we used to eat at Applebee's all the time. So I think it was a Chili's. Pretty sure it was a Chili's. Early 2010 after the 2009 season. So anyway, Kurt Warner wasn't in the Eli Manning window of age and career decline. So Warner played nine games, started nine games, was five and four, and then came the surprising move at the time from Warner to Eli. This time around, sixth overall pick, guy who they have been trying to bench for the past couple of years, kind of clumsily, kind of clunkily, and 
I feel like it can happen. We're going to play the very best player, Coach Pat Shermer said on Tuesday. I know we're dancing around the words here, but right now, Eli is getting ready to have a great year, and Daniel is getting ready to play. We'll just see what happens. We feel good where Eli is. He's our starting quarterback, and we've got a young player that we think is going to be an outstanding player getting himself ready to play. I'm not trying to be cryptic about it, Shermer said. It is what I said it is. Eli is getting ready to have an outstanding year, and Daniel is getting ready to play. That's really about it. When it was mentioned that both things can't be true at once, Shermer said, have at it, I guess. And remember, it was Mike Shula, the offensive coordinator of the Giants, who said, was it Shula? Is he the offensive coordinator right now? It's him, right? That Daniel Jones could be ready to play week one. The signs have been there. The indications have been there. We had an NBC event four weeks ago in New York held in connection with the upfronts where they present the new fall lineup. We had a dinner. We go up and talk. And I said, I won't rule out Daniel Jones being the week one starter. And it created a murmur. It created a murmur, as much of a murmur as it created two years ago when I stood up there and I said, the Eagles, I think, will win the division in 2017. I was wrong. They won the Super Bowl. How dare I? I'm telling you, Daniel Jones, I'm not ready to rule out Daniel Jones being the week one starter if, if the Giants were right about him. And here's the thing. The Giants are the ones deciding whether or not they were right about him. They have a vested interest. After all the shit they took for taking him sixth overall instead of waiting until number 17 and taking him there, that's the kind of stuff, that's the kind of thinking, that's the kind of dynamic that could get it skewed in Jones' favor, that could cause him to win a tie or something close to it. And if it's not a tie, if Jones is clearly better, you have to go with Jones. The locker room's going to know. They're going to know. So, that's where it all currently stands. The door is open for Daniel Jones to be the starter when week one rolls around. And... If I had to guess, I'd say there's a pretty good chance it's going to be him. But he's going to have to earn it on the field. Like he should. He should have that chance, and he does. And now we'll see what he does with it. It should be all about competition and the best player playing all the time. And I think that what Shermer said today, I think it makes it clear that that he will have that opportunity. And the best player will play. And if it's not Daniel Jones, then I think we we wonder whether or not the Giants were wrong when they made Jones the sixth overall pick in the draft. Aaron Rodgers cutting a big check to Cal football. Seven-figure donation that will be used to renovate the locker room and endow a scholarship. The school announced it. Now, if you're going to call it a seven-figure donation, I assume it's a million. Why would you give more than a million if they're only going to call it a seven-figure donation? It could be $9,999,999.99, and it's still a seven-figure donation. So I'm assuming it's a million bucks, which is significant money. I'm pleased to make 
This gift to support Cal football, Rogers said, my years at Cal were among the best years of my life. My time in Berkeley created lasting, unforgettable memories. Coach Justin Wilcox was on the coaching staff when I was a Bear, and I'm excited about the team's direction with Justin pointing the way. He is a tremendous football coach and an even better role model for his players. I hope that my contribution can help him move this program forward. That's fine. Rogers can do whatever he wants to do with his money. But this is not a program that needs his money. They don't pay the players. They don't pay the players. Why do they need his million dollars? So they can make the facilities nice enough to lure more players to choose to play there when they're not getting paid? I guess you need that to compete with all the other programs that have Nike money like Oregon. Aaron Donald gave big money to Pitt. I wonder how hard they work on these guys to get them to give big money. Now remember, Aaron, you wouldn't be playing right now and making the money you're making if it wasn't for the experiences you had at Cal. You know what my response to that would be? My response to that would be, shut the hell up. I gave you a hell of a lot more than a million dollars already by my efforts. You got free labor out of me for however many years I was there. You ain't getting anything else. I mean, I have, look, I'm very libertarian when it comes to this kind of stuff. Somebody asked me last week, I think it was on the Joe Rose show, he and Zach Krantz asked me if I was with somebody at a expensive steakhouse and they put ketchup on their steak, what would I say? It's like, I don't care. You do what you want. I don't like to tell people what to do. I will analyze and criticize football moves and give you my thoughts on what I would have done. But when it comes down to it, people can do whatever the hell they want. Aaron Rodgers, you want to give a million dollars to Cal football? Have at it. But I'd rather give my money to places where there really is a need and where there isn't a system that is inherently, for lack of a better word, corrupt. My attitude would be, you've already got everything you're getting out of me. You ain't getting another penny. You got more than you should have from me. And I didn't get paid. And yes, you helped shape me into the quarterback that I now am, sort of. But you didn't do it for me. You did it for you. This has been some altruistic endeavor. We're going to spend our time and effort to develop young men into professional quarterbacks for them. Bullcrap. School does it for themselves. The school has a very strong interest in developing their players to be as good as they can be. And I guess part of that interest is make them as good as they can be and hope that they'll throw some money back your way. Get another million dollars on top of the money that you don't give to the players. I'd love to know what kind of squeeze they put on Aaron Rodgers. What kind of squeeze was put on Aaron Donald by Pitt? What kind of guilt trip? Well, you know, Aaron, we really could use that money. Well, why? Why do you need my money? You don't pay the players. How about I donate the million dollars to the players? How about I just give it to them? How about I carve it up into 53 small envelopes? And I know there's more than 53 players in the program. How about I carve it up 20 ways, 50,000 each, and we'll identify the 20 players most worthy of it. We'll give it to them. Oh, we can't do that. Well, then I'm not doing it. That's what bothers me about it. I'm not inclined to give a penny to any school that I ever went to. I already gave you my tuition. I gave you my time. I busted my ass. I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Do you give money to the school that you went to? I support it. 
I'd be more inclined to give money to West Virginia, but that's the thing. Why am I giving to West Virginia football? Why would I do that? I have a hard time justifying buying tickets anymore when you realize that the players get none of it. It bothers me. I'm glad my Saturdays in the fall are occupied with me traveling to Connecticut for the Sunday night football duties because I don't know that I would go to the games like I used to. I've evolved in my thinking. And if they hit me up for money for West Virginia football, I'd say for what? For the players? What do you need my money for? You're already building your program on the backs of unpaid labor. You don't need my money. You don't need, well, not that I played West Virginia University football, but especially if I, someone who played there, think about that. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Well, not really. But as it relates to college football, you provide free labor, and then when you parlay that into getting paid for your efforts and get paid very well for your efforts, you got somebody squeezing you to make a donation. Now, look, here's the thing. Aaron Rodgers' name is probably going to get plastered on the weight room or the locker room or something like that. Men like to put their, well, and women, but it's a, it's it feels like it's been traditionally a thing where men who have achieved levels of success financially, professionally, they like to get their names on stuff. I guess that's the way they live on after they die. You know, I'm dead. I'm never coming back. I won't be there to see people say 50 years from now, who was Aaron Rodgers again? Why is this named after him, this locker room? Oh, he played football? Really? Aaron Rodgers? Oh, I don't Oh, I don't know about him. That was like, you know, 40 years before I was born. The Aaron Rodgers Memorial Weight Room. The Aaron Rodgers Memorial Study Hall. People like to have their names on stuff. I have no compulsion to do that isn't that weird i don't know maybe maybe i'm you know i'm still chasing the point where i i guess when you get to the top of the mountain financially and professionally that's all you can really do start slapping your name on stuff and like for the rest of us who are still trying to get to the point where we have what we want financially and we're taken care of maybe we don't even think about that but i don't aspire to have my name on stuff I'm too cheap for that. I'm going to give you a million dollars and you put my name on something? No, I'll just keep the million dollars. I'll give the million dollars to my family. They can put my name on their lips when they remember that uh, the old man gave him a million dollars before he croaked or as part of his will. That's how I'll do it. Anyway, I'm spending a lot of time talking about something that I really don't care about, but it just bothers me to think that professional football players, after playing college football for free, contributing to the program that way get squeezed to give money because I'm sure they do get squeezed I'm sure they're not doing this out of the goodness of their own heart unless they they're trying to give into that that desire to get their name on stuff Texans trying to hire Nick Casario it sure seems like he's the top choice for the Houston Texans to be the next GM of the team. And I just have a feeling that this is not going to be as simple as the Texans think. I have a feeling that 
I mean, there's just something there for me that makes me think it's not going to be as simple. Whether it's the job doesn't entail, the authority that it needs to entail for the Texans to hire Nick Casario, whatever it is. It's just one of those gut feelings. Same gut feeling that that makes me think Daniel Jones has a real chance to start in New York, and it appears he now does. There should be a deadline on when you can hire an executive away from another team. Like, there should be a window from the moment your team season ends for X number of days. That's your window to disrupt another team's preparation for the next season. Think about it. You got all your ducks in a row. Everything's ready to go. The hay's in the barn. You've done your work. You're ready. Your GM is ready to go or your assistant, whatever his name, director of player personnel, he's ready to go. And then another team fires a GM and you got to worry about losing one of your key people in June. You got to react on the fly in June. It just doesn't sit well with me. It should be that they have to hire somebody either from within or somebody who's not connected to a team. And do it on an interim basis. Remember, the Panthers got away with that, Marty Herney, without complying with the Rooney rule. Hired him on an interim basis. At this point, at some point, it should be regarded as an interim hire and it should be a hire that can't be made by pilfering someone from another team. Same thing applies to the Eagles and Joe Douglas. They just lost him last week. And I understand that the cycle makes sense in a different way for general managers because teams will want to keep them through the draft. But you know what? If you don't like the guy, I mean, I guess, I guess here's the thing. I guess some of these teams, they wait until after the draft and then they evaluate the GM. Like, oh, you know what? You really screwed up the draft. Sorry, you had a chance to stay, but yeah, you know, we don't like. I mean, I, I don't. It's like, how do you even begin to evaluate a guy based on draft picks? They could all end up being Hall of Famers. Think of how weird that is. I understand it makes more sense to let the GM finish the process of the free agency season and draft season and then evaluate him. But how in the hell can you even begin to evaluate him? What if Le'Veon Bell has 2,500 yards? What if C.J. Mosley becomes an all-pro? What if the draft picks made by Mike McCagnan before he was fired end up being pro bowlers right out of the gates? What if it's a Steelers 1974 draft all over again? Oh, I guess we screwed that up. I think there should be a limit, an outer limit, and it should be before free agency begins on when, if you fire your GM or your head coach, you can hire someone away from another team. I just think it's fair to everybody. The Patriots, the Eagles, everybody. Because it can happen to anybody. Any given year. One of these teams can decide in June, ah, the hell with this guy. Let's go take someone else's top lieutenant in their personnel department, even though they had no reason to think that the guy may be taken away from them. Now, look, that's not the rule on the books. In theory, Nick Casario could be plucked away from the Patriots at any time, in theory. Assuming that the authority is given to him that is required under the anti-tampering policy and there are no other impediments. I just don't, I don't like the fact that it's happening in June. And I don't like it for any team that it would be happening now. And 
I just, and, and again, that's not why I just, you know, sometimes you just have a feeling. That's all I'm saying. And sometimes your feelings are right. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, as they say, a bunch of crap. Jalen Ramsey apparently thinks it's a bunch of crap that the Jaguars will not be extending his contract. He's under contract for this year and one more. Now, Rihanna Ngakwe is trying to get a contract before his deal expires in 2020. The Jaguars have yet to do it for him. Ramsey says he's been told that because of the team's cap situation, he won't be getting a deal this year. And Ramsey's response is, hey, the money's always there. And you know what? I... I don't disagree with that. I think cap space is always available if you want to make it work. Cash is always around when you consider the amount of money that these teams make. I think that what happens more than anything else is that teams will create budgets that tie their hands artificially. And they only have so much money in the budget that they can utilize. And it's a lot of false barriers that teams put up. And this whole idea of creating a budget, a budget that requires a team to wait. Sorry, Jalen, we're going to have to wait for another year while they continue to squat on his rookie contract. And remember, the rookie wage scale was put in place in 2011 to ensure that players who stink won't suck money out of the system, won't end up taking away money that isn't earned, that otherwise could go to players who are earning it. That's why they put it in place. And I remember interviewing the commissioner nine years ago in connection with the one and only PFT season preview magazine, still have the cover framed on the wall up over the Florio Street sign that more than 30 years ago. Am I, am I, I'm sure the statutes of limitations have run. When I lived in the East Bay in the mid eighties, there was a Florio street in Oakland. And I decided I would have that sign. And a couple of my friends and I went one night with the appropriate tools and I don't know how much alcohol was consumed ahead of time to give someone the nerve to shimmy up the pole and pop the sign loose, but the sign was popped loose. And it is, I don't even know how I got it into my wall. It's pretty heavy. So it's funny. I look at it every once in a while and I laugh because, yeah, I, you know, it was stupid to do that. But I'm not sending it back. I've since seen pictures. They have a different street sign style there now. So they gotten rid of the one. You know, they, 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 they would have thrown it away by now anyway. So that's, that's how I justify that. So that, that's sitting below the one and only PFT season preview cover. And in that edition, interview with the commissioner, and I asked him point blank about the rookie wage scale as it relates to the players who end up meriting the big contract that they no longer get now. Because none of them get the big contract, either the ones who stink or the ones who don't. How do you justify that? And... The commissioner said, well, you know, the teams will take care of the 
guys who deserve it. But they don't. They don't. Sometimes they wait until the fifth year. Sometimes they wait until the franchise tag is applied. Sometimes they make the guy play a year under the franchise tag. Sometimes they never reward him financially for what he's done under his rookie deal. Jadavian Clowney is still waiting for his reward. Jalen Ramsey is waiting for his reward. Some guys get a contract after three years like Carson Wentz, and some guys have to wait. And I don't know how much of that gets addressed in the next round of CBA discussions. It's just not fair to the players who have had their, what once was a windfall, eliminated due to fears that that they're not going to be as good as their draft position would suggest. Some guys are. Jalen Ramsey was. And where's his financial reward? That's, that's, that's my point. Here's another thing to keep in mind. If you're doing a repair that needs a special tool, O'Reilly Auto Parts makes it easy with their loaner tool program. Over 80 specialized loaner tools are available. They're sure to have a tool in stock to help you get the job done. Purchase the needed parts and put a down a deposit on the loaner tool. Return the tool in the original condition and receive a full refund. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every day. All right, time to answer some of your questions. June 11, Billy Bats Day. June 11, 1970, the day... According to Goodfellas. Now, look, the Billy Bats story is real. It's based on a true story documented in the book Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, chronicling the mafia life of Henry Hill. Tommy, I think it's Tommy Delvecchio. I think that's his name in the book. They changed the last names. Like Polly. Polly's last name was Vario. He was actually a, a boss in the I think the the Lucchese crime family I think Jimmy Conway is Jimmy Burke Jimmy Conway in the movie Jimmy Burke in the book but regardless in the movie Tommy encounters Billy Bats at a club owned by Henry Hill on the night that Bats is celebrating his relief from prison and Billy Bats sees Tommy and starts giving him a hard time breaking his balls. He said, if I really want to break your balls, I'll tell you to go get your shine box. And he said, oh, you used to shine shoes. And Tommy got offended. I don't shine, I don't shine shoes. Maybe you haven't heard, but I don't shine shoes no more. And then Billy Bats lets him have it one more time. Tommy leaves. Tommy comes back. And they kill Billy Bats. But they don't kill him right away. They think they kill him. They put him in the trunk of Henry's car. And they go to Tommy's mother's house to get a shovel, I think, but they also take a big giant knife. And they eat. Well, dead Billy Bats is in the trunk, but Billy Bats, as it turns out, is not dead. Sorry for the spoiler here, but the movie's been out for 30 years. If you're ever going to see it, you've seen it by now. So as they're driving down the road, they hear the clunking around in the trunk. Henry Hill pulls over. They pop the trunk. They realize Billy Bats is still alive, and that didn't last for very long. Jimmy puts a few bullets into him. Tommy stabs him with the knife that he took from his mother house for good measure, and then they bury him. And then six months later, they find out that where they buried him in upstate New York, the guy sold the property. They're going to put in condominiums, so they had to go dig it up. And that part's true. And Henry Hill was involved in digging up Billy Bats. And 
the car stunk so bad. Like he could never get rid of the stink. I think Henry Hill had to get rid of the car. There's a scene where he's hosing out the back of the trunk and he's got his shirt up over his nose. The smell was so bad. I think he had to get rid of the car. So anyway, that was June 11, 1970, according to Goodfellas, as they established the scene where Billy Bats gets whacked by Tommy and Tommy eventually gets whacked because Billy Bats was a made guy. You can't kill a made guy without a sit down and and and, and a approval, especially if you're not made. And then you got Henry Hill and Jimmy the Gent. They were not even fully Italian, so they weren't even in the mob per se. They were just on the fringes, and I'm surprised they didn't get whacked too. But I don't know how much in the book Henry and Jimmy were involved in whacking Billy Bats. I spent a lot of time talking about it. Let me tell you, it is an excellent movie, and I've said this before. If you have not yet read Wise Guy by Nicholas Pileggi, it is worth your time. It is excellent. I flew through it in three days, and I may read it again before the summer's over. I actually found a first edition, first printing of Wise Guy and bought it on eBay or Amazon or somewhere. And the next time around, I'm reading that. Not, you know, I like reading books on my phone. It's easier that way. You can sit outside in the dark and you don't need a light. But I still like having the books. So if I get a book that I really like, I buy the book. Isn't that ridiculous? I buy the book twice. I buy it once to read it on my phone to screen it. And if it's really good, then I'll buy the book itself and I won't read it again. But at least I have the book. This one I'll read again. PFTPM Posse. How do you think the contract situations of Yannick Ngakwe and Dak Prescott get resolved? How should they be resolved? How do we fix the new money at signing versus per year average that has come about? Now, you got it twisted a little bit here. It's new money versus total value at signing. And the point that I made yesterday as it relates to Yannick Ngakwe, the point that we made yesterday on PFT Live as it relates to Dak Prescott, when you tear up a guy's contract when he still has time left on it at low salaries, that drives up the new money average ridiculously. And the example I used with Yannick Ngakwe, if he would sign right now the five-year, $105 million contract that DeMarcus Lawrence got from the Cowboys, the new money average would be $25.75 million because it would be a four-year, $103 million extension to the one-year, $2 million he's already due to make. Teams don't want to do that. See, this is where that that desire by agents to trumpet the new money value of their deals. That's where it makes it harder to get more money for guys who are still under contract at low salary amounts because the team doesn't want to have its name attached to making Yannick Ngakwe the highest paid player, the highest paid defensive player in the NFL at $25.75 million. And then that number gets crammed down the throats of teams who are in position where they are signing guys who don't have years left on their contracts. And now the new high watermark is $25.75 million. And it's a bizarre shell game. And they just need to be done with it. And one of the reasons why it's legitimized, if they would do a deal for Yannick Ngakwe at five years, 105, it wouldn't get processed by the union as five years, 105. It would get processed as four years, 103. So it makes it hard to push back against that new money analysis, that fiction of new money, when that's the way the NFLPA records those. And that's how some agents who get mad at me for 
calculating total value at signing, not new money. That's how they justify it. Well, that's how the NFLPA does it. Well, it doesn't make it right. Maybe the NFLPA should stop doing it. And that's kind of my suggestion. Maybe they should stop doing it. Maybe that's the key to getting players more money. So I don't know how it's going to work out with Prescott or Ngakwe. But quarterbacks need to be willing, in my opinion, to let their contracts expire, play out a franchise tag or two, and then force their way to free agency the way Kirk Cousins did. Because the injury risk for quarterbacks is less than it is for other positions. Although we saw what happened to Alex Smith last year. And yes, there is injury risk no matter what. But, but, if Kirk Cousins, who was not a franchise quarterback, sorry, Kirk, but you're not one of the top five. I mean, true franchise quarterbacks. But he was able to get to the open market. That's the key. If you can get to the open market, even as a mid-level quarterback, if you get there unfettered, you're going to make a ton of money. And if I'm Dak Prescott, I say no. Franchise tag me next year. And then we'll do a contract based on the franchise tag because maybe that contract's going to be worth a lot more than whatever they're offering him now. They want him to do a team-friendly deal. They're one of the teams, one of the few teams that will spend up to the cap, so they need a team-friendly deal from their quarterback. And whether they get one or not, let's see. And here's what it all comes down to. No matter what Dak Prescott wants, when that offer is put on the table, the last best offer, this is it. This is it. This is all you get. Sometimes it's hard to say no to that, especially if you've never gotten a big payday as an NFL player. PFDPM policy. Why does the NFL want the coaches to do the job of the officials and 345 Park Avenue and fix their mistakes by throwing the challenge flag? Don't coaches have enough responsibilities during games already? Just do whatever it takes to get calls right. Look, I think that the NFL should deal with the aftermath of the Ram Saints game with a video official, sky judge, someone who is there to protect against the worst case scenario and fix those problems as part of the first look at a play, not part of replay review. The NFL has decided for now to go with replay review for pass interference in all instances, non-calls, calls, offensive, defensive, and the competition committee secured from ownership the ability to carve some of that power away. And what the competition committee wants to do is take 345 Park Avenue and more specifically the replay official in the stadium out of that obligation to determine when an automatic review is necessary. They want the coaches to have to throw the red challenge flag, and the coaches don't want to do it. Why do you want to put a coach in a position where he's got to keep a red challenge flag in his pocket just in case he gets screwed late? I never liked that idea that you have to budget. You have to guess. How many times am I going to get screwed this game? Because I just got screwed on this play, but I didn't get screwed enough that it's worth using one of the red challenge flags because I have to take into account the possibility of getting screwed later. And I better have one of these red flags left in the event that Nikel Roby Coleman blows up Tommy Lee Lewis with less than two minutes to go and I don't have automatic replay review available to me and I better be able to throw the red flag or I'm going to look like a schmuck, a schmuck on wheels, as Maury would say from Goodfellas. If I fail to have that ability to overturn a horrible call. So what the NFL wants, though, 
The NFL wants to avoid a situation where automatic review is happening all the time of pass interference in the final two minutes of either half, overtime, on touchdowns, on turnovers. Think about what happens if automatic review is available on a touchdown, passing touchdown. What you have to do if you're the replay official. First, you got to look at the catch. Is there indisputable visual evidence? Is it clear and obvious that the ruling on the field of no pass interference by the offense is correct? See, that's how you avoid doing an automatic review. It has to be clear and obvious that the ruling is correct. Well, what if there was some hand fighting? What if there was maybe a little push, a little shove, a little something that didn't get flagged? Then you kick in a full replay review. Now, the full replay review goes the other way. Is there clear and obvious evidence that the ruling on the field was wrong? But it doesn't take much to initiate the full review. It has to be clear and obvious the ruling was correct. That's what they don't want to get into. And then beyond that, beyond any hand fighting, pushing, shoving, incidental contact, whatever, that happens at the catch, you got to rewind it all the way to the snap. And you got to see whether or not any eligible receivers were blocking defensive players more than a yard away from the line of scrimmage because that's a screen, an illegal screen, offensive pass interference. See, the NFL doesn't want to have to do that. And I can get behind the idea of not wanting to bog the game down. So I don't know how they're going to do this. Sky Judge would be the way to do it. I hope that one of these days they just give in. They just roll out of bed and say, you know, we're being kind of stubborn here. The obvious answer is staring us right in the face. And yeah, we prefer not to get pressured into doing something we don't want to do. But hey, we got to do it. We got to do Sky Judge. It's the right answer. And trust me, it's the right answer. PFTPM policy. How does the NFL balance the percentage of cap spent between all 32 franchises, which are independent businesses, without colluding? Don't they have to collude to make sure they spend 95% of total cap space combined in minimum? Look, here's the thing. There's a certain amount of collusion that is permitted within the confines of a multi-employer bargaining unit. See, here's what you have. A very unique workforce that is being accessed only by a certain number of companies. And in that setting collusion is not a violation as long as the collusion happens in a way that comports with the terms of the CBA. Salary cap. Without a CBA, without a multi-employer bargaining unit, that's collusion. Salary cap within the confines of a CBA negotiated by a multi-employer bargaining unit, not collusion. Minimum salaries. Minimum salary. Collusion. Franchise tag, collusion, everything that is spelled out in the CBA regarding the limits, the restrictions, the abilities to sign players, that would be collusion without a multi-employer bargaining unit. So that's what allows it to happen. But, you know, I've said this before. I believe one of the important issues in the next CBA for the players is to force the spending floor higher. Because you only have to spend 89 cents on the dollar on a four-year rolling average. That means you can keep 11 cents on the dollar. Now, league-wide, there has to be 95 cents on the dollar spent. But there are enough teams that are spending enough, close enough to 100 cents on the dollar, to push and account for the teams that are at 89 or close to that.
Dean Osborne, 42. Where do you rank Troy Aikman on the all-time quarterback list? Well, I don't carry one around in my pocket, so I would have to make a list. And here's the problem. Anytime you do something like that, you get yourself into a predicament very quickly. Because if you start saying, yeah, Troy Aikman, yeah, he's top 15 all time. And then you look at all the top 15 quarterbacks and you got 30 of them. I wouldn't put Troy Aikman in the top 10. I probably wouldn't put him in the top 15. Maybe that's an exercise we'll engage in at some point. Ranking the all-time best quarterbacks. Now, the problem is there are a lot of great quarterbacks that played under very different rules well before we even saw them. Otto Graham, where does he fit? Sid Luckman, where does he fit? Sammy Ball, where does he fit? John Unitas, he doesn't get the credit that he should. Len Dawson, Bart Starr. How do you do that? It almost has to be Super Bowl era. Even then, we're getting so far removed from the early Super Bowls, I think it becomes very difficult. So I don't know where Troy Aikman would fit. But I look, he won three Super Bowls, and that's worth a lot. That's why he's in the Hall of Fame. What were the four categories I came up with when Donovan McNabb was trying to get himself in the Hall of Fame? Longevity, statistics, championships, and shit, there was one more. Longevity... Statistics, championships, was it durability? I don't know what it was. There was a fourth one. Dominance. Dominance. That's what it was. That sense that your years were great years. MVP years. Leading the league in passing yardage. Leading the league in passer rating. Dominance, longevity, statistics, and championships. You don't have to have all four, but you got to have at least one in a heavy dose to account for the other three. And for Troy Aikman, championships strong enough to make up for any shortcomings in the other three. Donovan McNabb doesn't have enough of the four ingredients. Eddie Horse Sports, the Rams haven't picked up Jared Goff's 2020 option or extended him yet. Well, they have picked up the option for 2020. I wouldn't. He's terrible. <laughs> the Super Bowl 53 showed me all I need to know. Are they going to ride out Gurley and Donald Deals, try to sign Marcus Peters and draft a quarterback in 20 or 21? I would. Thoughts? Well, yeah, they did pick up the op- option for Jared Goff for 2020. Now, they could still cut him before the start of the 2020 league year, and if he's healthy, they won't owe him anything. Look, I still think there's a chance. Now, I thought that in 2018 there was a potential tug-of-war looming between Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan for Kirk Cousins. Jared Goff played well enough in 2017, and the 49ers acquired Jimmy Garoppolo via trade with the Patriots, and that took the potential back and forth between McVay and Shanahan for Cousins off the table. I think it can happen again, or happen at all. It didn't happen the last time. I think after this year, if Jimmy Garoppolo stinks... This year, if he gets injured again early, if he just can't play at a high level, if he's not durable, the 49ers may decide to move on from him. We were talking about this today on PFT Live. And it could put the 49ers in play for Kirk Cousins. Oh, yes, it could. And if the Rams start thinking Kirk Cousins may land in San Francisco, and you're looking at $28 million for that last year of the contract for Kirk Cousins... Maybe that's better than giving Jared Goff $32 million a year. So you flip to Kirk Cousins. I'm telling you, I'm not ruling out anything in this league, and we have to be watching and looking and waiting and wondering how things could play out. And I think 
especially in San Francisco, they may be in sufficiently desperate after this season to do something like that. And if the Vikings aren't sold on Cousins after this year and they can get out from under his contract for next year, which is fully guaranteed, it's a way that the planets could line up to make that happen. I'm not saying it will happen. I'm just saying you have to keep an eye on the possibility. Big Blue 42 PSU points out it's the 49th anniversary of Billy Bat's death. Thank you for that. We've already addressed it. Bored to death, do you think cap space is too heavily scrutinized over particularly when it comes to quarterback salaries, given that it regularly increases every year. I feel like in the end, teams are always able to keep the guys they truly want. I agree with that to an extent, but again, again, it's the budget that drives things, not the cap. It doesn't matter what the cap space is if you're not willing to spend to the cap or spend above the cap, which teams used to do. That's the way teams keep money in their pockets. That's the way owners can afford John Lennon's piano or John Voigt's car. We talked about that yesterday. It's the budget that complicates things, not the cap. And if you're willing to spend up to the cap, it's a lot easier to have a competitive team. See, the Vikings right now are in this, we want to win a Super Bowl mode, and they are going all out, spending, 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 spending to keep a great team together, or at least a team that they think can be great. I don't know. They got to prove it to me for me to believe it. But they're doing what they can to hold the team together. They're not hoarding cap space like other teams are. GB Soccer 6, with the KD injury and with the injury of Earl Thomas, will more players be more cautious of their health when deciding to play? Well, Earl Thomas wasn't injured. When he played, he just was in the last year of his contract. He wanted a new contract, and he got pissed off when he suffered the broken leg. Broken leg can happen in football. Terrell Owens had a tweet today that I think made a lot of sense. Look, ultimately, don't blame the team. Don't blame the doctors. The player wants to play. You think Kevin Durant was saying, I really don't think I'm ready. I, you know, I know you need me. But, you know, I really don't think I'm ready to play in this Game 5 of the NBA Finals. I'd really like to sit this one out. Usually it's the other way around. Usually the player is saying, I want to play, I want to play, I want to play, I want to play, and the team is trying to hold him back. So, I think that's the way we need to look at it. Andrew won TM. What is the most old man opinion you have about society and culture today? Dude, I ain't that old. I ain't that old. And you know what? Anytime I get called old, I just laugh about it. And I say, because I know, look, I'm not getting called old by somebody who's older. I was talking to somebody the other day who was born the day after me, but two years earlier. So not really the day after me. You know what I mean? Birthday is on the 9th of June, but was in 63. And I said, you know, it's always nice to come across someone who's older than me because I'm having a harder time finding them. I don't think the person appreciated the remark the way I intended it. But anybody out there who would be inclined to call me old, first of all, I don't give a shit. Second of all, you should pray every day that you get to live as long as I have because there ain't no guarantee you're going to. I don't want to be morbid here, but a lot of shit can happen to you between the ages of 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. That's what I celebrate every year. I remember the hardest birthday for me happened 31 years ago, June 8, 1988, when I turned 23. My son turns 23 in September, proving yet again that I am old. But I remember when I turned 23, it messed with me. 
because that was the first year where I was consciously aware there is no other good number out there, right? When you're growing up, what do you want to be? You want to be older. You want to be big. You want to be an adult. Oh, I want to be 10. Then when you're 10, oh, I want to be a teenager. Oh, that's going to be cool when I'm a teenager. 13, yeah. Then you're 13. Oh, I want to drive. I got to be 16 to drive. I can't wait to be 16. I want to drive. Then you turn 16. You know what you want to be when you're 16? You want to be 18. Because when you're 18, you can drive and drink, not at the same time. Although in those days, things were a little bit different. Thank God that's changed. You can drink, you can smoke if you're inclined to do so. Now, look, here's the thing. When the drinking age is 18 and the smoking age is 18, it's a hell of a lot easier for people under 18 to get access to alcohol and tobacco. But there's, there's something that is empowering about going into a store and buying alcohol when you turn 18. You're an adult now. Let me tell you, I still feel weird when I buy wine or beer at the store now. When I have wine or beer with my groceries, they don't card me anymore. They'll ask you to, you know, give you your, your date of birth. And I watch for a flinch. But I still feel that little, you know, because I'm used to those years where you weren't allowed to do it. But then you turn 18 and you can do that. Then what's next? Oh, 21. When you're 21, you're really an adult. You're a man at 21. So you turn 21. Hey, man, I'm 21. Prime of my life. I can do anything. I was extremely athletic at 21. I make up for that now by not being athletic at all. I ride my exercise bike every day. And I do ride it every day. When I'm in town, I ride it every day. I do not take a day off, no matter how tired I am, no matter what time of day it is. We talked last week. I like to do it before I eat dinner because then I can enjoy my dinner a little bit more. I feel like I got my workout in, but I try to trick myself into thinking I haven't had my workout, so I don't overdo it because that's the problem. See, last night I did the workout after dinner. It was a good day because I, I, I wasn't sure I was going to get the work. I'm never sure I'm going to get it in, although deep down I know I will. When I'm eating, I'm not sure. You never know what may happen that would keep me from getting in the workout. But back at the age of 21, I mean, it was lift, it was run, it was go play basketball. I, I used to I used to keep track of how many times throughout the course of the day I broke a sweat. I remember the summer of 88. That was the first time I became aware of the term global warming. And that was when I was 23. That That's the, you know, the, the, the birthday. That was the year that screwed me up, relatively speaking. It was so hot that summer. And I had, see, I used to run a lot of 5Ks and 10Ks, and that was my wardrobe when you're that age. All the t-shirts you get. You run the race, you get a t-shirt. And I sweat so much that summer that those, I had to throw all those shirts out. They stunk so bad. You couldn't wash them enough times to get the stink out of them. I would sweat five different times a day. Not like, oh, it's hot, I'm sweating. It Like doing something that required enough exertion so you're dripping, sopping wet. So anyway, 21 is when you're at your peak, you're at your prime, everything's great. And then 22, you're still in the you're still in the shadow of 21. You still feel like you're 21. That new wilderness rolls around at 23 and it hit me. Where does it go from here? What do you do? 25, 27. I remember when I graduated high school. I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting on a chair 
in our dining room, a room that you rarely go into. There's the living room that you would go into on, well, see, it was a combination of living room, family room, so it wasn't as forbidden, but you had to be very careful. There was the plastic landing strip that went from the door to the couch. The the couch was either covered in plastic or a giant white sheet. The, li- the, the dining room was just that room where, you know, you ate there a couple of times a year. Easter, Christmas, otherwise... You don't go in the dining room. Now, you had to pass through the dining room to get from the kitchen to the living room, but it was it was okay to take a few steps in it, but you didn't hang out there. It was too nice, not that it was, you know, fabulous. It's not like the Buckingham Palace, but it, it, relatively speaking, that was the, the one nice room in the house that you just didn't mess with. But I remember, because I had like a party at the house after I graduated, so there was a lot of activity in the dining room for a week or so in 1983. And I remember sitting on one of the extra chairs that we kept up against the wall when it wasn't, you know, in use at the dining room table. And I remember sitting there with a new calculator. I got this Texas Instruments calculator, and they had this weird logic that you had to, like, backward-ass press enter and just weird. And I remember sitting there being consciously aware of the fact that I'll be 27 in nine years. And I pushed that thought out of my head. But I remember having that thought, June of 1983. In nine years, I'll be 27. And it seemed like forever. When you're young, the passage of time feels like it takes so much longer than it does when you get older but 27 then 30 then 35 then you know and you have look when you have a kid when you get married everything changes but i just remember 23 being the one time the one time that i I had a birthday and the number changed and i was like oh shit this isn't good now here i am 31 years after turning 23 and it's like hey every year i get i'm happy and that's the attitude we should have So anyway, what was the question? I can't remember. I'm too old to remember. What's the most old man opinion you have about society and culture today? I, I look, I, I, I don't, I am extremely libertarian when it comes to the the clothes people wear, the music they listen to, the way they live their life. I don't care. As long as it doesn't affect me, I don't care. The one thing that bothers me the most is the tribalism that has invaded our life. Our politics, our sports fandom, where we get so tied to what we believe and what we root for and who we are and how we identify ourselves that we just become pig-headed about seeing other points of view. We refuse to accept any point of view different than our own. We process all facts in a way that support our point of view. It is sad and it needs to change because it does not put us on a good path. If that's an old man take on society well that's a take that more people should have old young and otherwise dean osborne 42 can you get shireen williams on the show more often she's fantastic every time she's on noted sean alvishire when michael scott closes the lackawanna county paper deal at chili's tim meadows character gives dunder mifflin their paper business wouldn't there be a public procurement process in rfp didn't Michael inadvertently sent Meadows to jail since there was a film crew taping it. Yes, usually there is some sort of a bid process for public contracts. Well done, Sean Alvishar. How long have you been sitting on that one? That was such a great episode because that was the first time we got a glimpse of Michael Scott's genius as a salesman. Michael Scott is one of these people who, for the most part, has no self-awareness, for the most part, is 
so obsessed with, do people like me? So obsessed with appearances. So obsessed with things that really shouldn't matter. And a bad, bad manager. Horrible manager. Remember the episode where he can't figure out who to fire? He's got to lay somebody off, but he doesn't want to lose someone as a friend. Horrible manager. Horrible supervisor. Insensitive. Hates Toby from HR. Makes inappropriate comments in the workplace. But a master salesman who completely, completely shuts down Jan Levinson Gold. That's the night he learned out there's no more that there's no more gold. But that's when we saw that there is that one skill set that he has, and he's a hell of a salesman, and he got it done to the point where Tim Meadows jeopardized his freedom by by entering into a no-bid contract with Dunder Mifflin to supply paper to the Lackawanna, Lackawanna County School District. Look, I, don't get me started. I think I've said this before in past episodes of the PFTPM podcast. Remember when Sabre buys Dunder Mifflin and there's an issue with the printers that catch on fire and Andy Bernard is the whistleblower and there's an effort made to find out who was the rat who told the media about it and they were going to fire whoever it was that, that that I remember thinking this is a dangerous message to send to corporate America because the idea is that people who bring these safety issues to light are protected you don't fire them you celebrate them for having the 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 courage to do what's right and there's a lot of lawsuits that have been fueled by that mindset but they just act like it's yeah that's the way it works that's not the way it works that's the way people get sued and lose tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars if not millions of dollars based upon the facts of the case all right a couple more of these and then i gotta wrap it these are these are funny though eddie horse sports is houston firing brian gain more a case of cal mcnair deciding to run it his way or bill o'brien trying to find a gm that can deal with him it better be mcnair o'brien hasn't done enough he's on a slippery slope where if it doesn't work out he's never going to be an nfl head coach again one new personality in the texans organization that we need to pay attention to and this is a guy, I need to do a little more research on this, need to do a little more reading. This is a guy who was just hired away from the Patriots. A guy named Jack Easterby. Jack Easterby. He has a dramatic amount of influence with the Houston Texans. And he's not a coach. I don't know what he is. He is the executive VP of team development with the Houston Texans. He's 36 and he looks like he's 66. He was the team development director slash character coach for the Patriots from 23 to 2018. He was also team chaplain for the Chiefs in 2011 and 2012. Jack Easterby. This guy has a lot of juice with the Texans all of a sudden. And I think that this Jack Easterby I don't know that he wants to be a GM. I don't know what he wants, but I have a feeling that he's got far greater ambition than someone with his title, his experience, his education should have. And it's going to be very interesting to see how he how he plays in in Houston because he's already generated a ton of influence. So I don't know who's calling the shots there. I don't know who it is that 
that is making this call on number one, getting rid of Brian Gain, and number two, uh, deciding where they go from here. But keep an eye on Jack Easterby. I think the guy's got plenty of influence in the Texans organization. Dr. J144, does money A, change people, or B, make people more of who they are in your experience? I look at Kellen Winslow II, Brandon Browner, Darren Sharper, and Aaron Hernandez, and wonder how or why they threw away fame and fortune. Here's the thing. I don't think money changes people. I think people think money will change them by making them happier. I think you still fundamentally are who you are. I mean, hell, I got more money now than I ever thought I would have, knock on wood. Not that I ever thought I would have much, because I grew up without much. Now, that was one of my incentives for busting my ass and trying to succeed because I remember vividly my parents discussing slash arguing how they were going to pay certain bills. And I remember hating that feeling. And they were doing it out of my earshot, or at least so they thought. But when you're a kid, you know, you like to hear, you know, something's amiss and you're listening. And it's like, oh, man, we're worried about money. I didn't know money was an issue. I thought we were fine. When you're a kid and you're growing up in a household that doesn't have a lot of money, you don't really think of it that way. Because you just, you live within your means. Now, you resent the people who are really rich, but that's like a different world. Like, that's a world I'll never be in where I can actually have a nice car. Or, you know, the house is really nice. Or, you know, we were as lower middle class as you could be, but I, I felt like we had plenty. So when those conversations would happen, it would scare the shit out of me. So anyway, that's what I always aspired to be in a position where that was never an issue. But I don't, I don't think I fundamentally changed now that I've had some success financially. And for a lot of players, and I remember having this explained to me as it relates to Pac-Man Jones, that when he was early in his career and he was pissing away money and he was pissing away his opportunities, and to his credit, he finally got his life in order and he had a much longer career than we ever thought he would have. But the mindset was this. He got through the first 20 plus years of his life without money and at some point, he'll go back to having no money again, and he'll find a way to survive. And for now, while he's got money, he's going to live it up and he's going to enjoy it. And you know what? There's something that, I don't know, in a weird sort of a way, is refreshing about that. There's a confidence that you're always going to have enough. That you're going to find a way to get by. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who don't have enough. And a lot of people who end up on the streets. And a lot of people who end up in prison. A lot of people who end up in bad spots. But just that, that, that confidence that it's all going to work out. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But I like, the, I, I like that, you know, we're living one day at a time and it's all going to work out. Just that kind of carefree. It's a good way to live. Instead of walking around worried all the time. Which I'm more inclined to be. Recliner QB, if the Bills or some other team were to move to Canada or some other country, wouldn't the NFL need to change their name to the International Football League? I don't. I know that they don't actually need to, but I think it would bother me slightly. God. You know, when, when that's on the list of things that bother you, you got a pretty good life. When, when you're in a position where you can actually take the time and formulate in your brain the thought that it would bother me if an NFL team moves to a different country and still is called the National Football League. I kind of, I kind of, you know, I look at that and I say, you, you must be living well if that can be the thing that crosses your radar screen. The National Basketball Association has a team in Canada. 
if you haven't heard, the Toronto Raptors. The National Hockey League has teams in Canada. So the Montreal Expos were in the National League. So I don't think it's an issue, recliner QB. But congratulations that you have the time to worry about that. Sean Alvishar, does the Floro family have any long-time traditions like the Shroots? We don't get married in our own graves. And, you know, tradition, like we have family-oriented traditions where, you know, Christmas and, you know, holiday-type stuff, but no crazy superstitions or things must be done a certain way. No. Especially not, like, just that very rigid German troop background, which is hilarious the way that that Dwight uh, adheres to it. Burn unit. Now that the ice has been broken with Phil Sims coming on to PFT Live, can you get him for a one-hour conversation for PFT PM? We'll put him on the list. Panthers Austria, if the league-wide spending was below 95% of the cap, how could the league force 32 independent businesses to spend more? Again, I appreciate these questions because it shows you're listening to the shit that I say here. But the way the CBA is negotiated if it does fall below 95%, right, there's a mechanism in place that the league has to give the money. And I don't know whether it's shared equally by all 32 teams. I mean, if, if you're one of the teams and you're above 95%, you shouldn't be expected to kick in more. I don't know how they figure that out. But there's a mechanism in place as part of the CBA for the 32 businesses to make it right if they are below 95% in league-wide spending. Nick Estrom, proprietor or keeper, I would f- be... I feel would be expectable replacements for, oh, okay. I didn't know whether you were making some, I thought this was, it's freaked me out. Cause it's like, is this some sort of fantasy question? Proprietor or keeper would be expectable replacements for owner. I don't know that expectable is the word there, but I deal with Sims every day. So I'll make it work. Proprietor would make it fancy or keeper would just be a fun replacement thoughts. This gets back to that question of whether or not there's another word that can be used to replace owner to the extent that there is a legitimate concern that owner is racially insensitive because it implies a connection to ownership of other human beings via slavery. And when you look at the NBA, you've got white owners and predominantly African-American players And is there another word you can come up with? We've been down that road. And I still think about it. And I said the other day, and I was going through yesterday, the record and fact book, looking at the names of what each owner is. You know, that's where it starts. Every team would have to come up with a name for the person who is fundamentally in charge of the team that didn't include owner in it. And look, I don't know. At some point, maybe I'll, I'll go through this book and I'll make a list. And we'll publicize the list of what every owner calls himself or herself. Ravens, Steve Bishotti, owner. Bills, owner, CEO, Terry Pagula, owner, president, Kim Pagula. Bengals, president, Mike Brown. See, that works. Browns, owner, Jimmy Haslam, owner, D. Haslam. This is a team-by-team thing. And... If the NFL wanted to, they would say this is the name that gets applied to the person who own who owns, you know, the the principal and controlling amount of equity in the franchise. And if it's a name other than owner, then it makes it a lot easier. Tyler Furness, is there anybody better at managing the salary cap than Rob Brzezinski and the Vikings? They've done a nice job of it in the past few years as they've gone pedal to the metal to try to win a Super Bowl. You know, there aren't many teams that are spending all the way to the top, and the Vikings currently are, and they found a way to get Kyle Rudolph extended despite all of that. 
All right, I probably should wrap this up. We're over an hour. I didn't expect it to be this long today, and there's still some questions here. Ricardo Hines, have you ever talked to Bill Belichick one-on-one? I haven't. I haven't. I don't know Bill Belichick. I don't like to talk about who I know and who I don't know, but I'm willing to say I've never spoken to Bill Belichick one-on-one. I had a weird dream a couple of weeks ago that I was interviewing him by phone. And then the next day, Paul Burmeister interviewed him at the lacrosse games that they had at Gillette Stadium. And you get him away from football, he's a great guy. But I've never spoken to him one-on-one. And I'm not just saying that to cover. I've never spoken to him. That doesn't mean I've never texted him, but I've never spoken to him. I'm just I'm just playing around. I've, I've never spoken to him, and I would be more nervous than the cowardly line going to see the Wizard of Oz. Let's see what else we have. Buffalo Guy 83, what fictional football movie is your favorite? I, I, I there's a, you know, let's, let's, let's end on this one because there's several that I really like. The first one I ever saw was The Longest Yard, and I saw that as the double feature to King Kong in 1976, 77 at the drive-in. And my mom and my sister were there, and it's the first time I ever heard an adult say the F word in the presence of of my mother or my sister. And I think I had a couple other friends there. We got in my sister's Volkswagen and went to the drive-in back in the days when number one drive-ins were a thing and they still are in some areas, but number two people actually went. I mean, it's a horrible experience. You've got this giant speaker that you hang on the window of your car and it's grainy and it's choppy and it's nothing like, you know, being in a real theater. It's just crap. It really is. But that was, think about that. You took your car, you drove your car into an area where there was a giant concrete wall onto which they projected a movie. And it was a big deal for a long time. So anyway, there was something about The Longest Yard, the original Longest Yard, that resonated with me. Rudy, for its own, you know, it's got that that very emotional, you know, it, is, it doesn't have as much football action as I would like, though. The Best of Times is one of my all-time favorite movies. Underrated. Robin Williams, Kurt Russell. Excellent movie where they, if you haven't seen it, and there's a lot of people that aren't aware of The Best of Times. The Best of Times is an excellent movie. It's a movie about a guy who had dropped the pass that would have won the game in some big high school rivalry in California, Taft versus Bakersfield. And Robin Williams is the guy, Jack Dundee, who drops the pass. And he's obsessed with playing the game again like 10 years later. That was a hell of a movie, 1986. So, favorite all-time fictional football movie? I'd say it is the best of times. I'll throw the curveball there. There's others that are in the mix. But, uh, you know, there are others that have been out there that disappointed me. Any given Sunday was a disappointment. Draft Day is the worst movie ever made. Leatherheads, even worse. Worst football movie ever made. I'd say Leatherheads is even worse than that. I remember back when, what's that guy's name, Rick Riley? When he was prominent with Sports Illustrated and then made the jump to ESPN. I don't even know what he does now. But I remember that when he was prominent in the media, he was on the banned list from PFT because of his involvement in writing the script for Leatherheads. That's how bad Leatherheads was. John Krasinski from The Office was in it. George Clooney was in it. It was an old school football movie. It was horrendous. I think I may have made the mistake of buying the DVD. It was horrendous. And it got Rick Riley banned from PFT. And again, it's, I don't know, where is he now? Whatever happened to Rick Riley? Do we know? I don't know. On that very important question, get back to me tomorrow. If let me know on Twitter whatever happened to Rick Riley. That's the that that tells me that you've listened to the whole thing. Remember, we used to like pull a random name out of the record and fact book. Today's test 
Today's challenge. Refresh my memory as to what the hell Rick Riley is doing now. Well, I hope he's alive. I'm going to feel really bad if he's not. Where is Rick Riley now? Assuming he's not six feet under. That's it. That's not, I got nothing else. Thank you as always. We'll see if we'll see about tomorrow, either tomorrow or Thursday. I think we're in three a week mode, right? Monday, Tuesday, and then after that, we'll see how the rest of the week unfolds. But I appreciate your attention. I appreciate your participation. I appreciate your loyalty. We'll be back Wednesday morning with another edition of PFT Live around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Thanks and have a great rest of your Tuesday. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.